please take a copy of God's word and turn with me, uh, not to 1 Peter chapter 2, but actually to 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Anybody tracking our progress through 1 Peter will notice that we're jumping over some verses. Don't, don't worry, we're not skipping them. We will return to them. Uh, I thought it appropriate with Ty's baptism this morning to take a look at a passage uh, dealing with baptism. Peter mentions baptism in these verses. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Now I suppose a bit of a warning is uh, in order. This is a tough passage. Some actually talk about this, this set of verses as one of the most difficult in all of the New Testament. Okay, so strap in this morning. Be sure to have uh, a Bible open in front of you, and uh, we will try to understand this passage together with the Spirit's help. Uh, earlier in the week, I, I was working on the sermon, and um, my mom was over watching uh, our kids, and I, I, I took a break to check on the kids, and for a couple of minutes was headed back to my study, and my mind was already back on this passage, and something clicked as I was walking down the hallway, and I, I said out loud, oh man, and my mom's out in the living room, she said, what are you oh manning about? And uh, I don't even think I answered her, because I was already lost in thought. Uh, all that to say, I labored this week for, for clarity, and at the end still felt like some more time was, was needed. So I, I hope the end result is something profitable for all of us, and that, of course, is only possible with God's help and blessing. So before we read the passage, let's pray and ask for his help. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would uh, enable us this morning to, to read to mark, to learn, and to inwardly digest um, this passage of your word and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Actually, let's back up to verse 17 for a little bit more of context. Peter says, It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. <clears throat> so I, I don't think anybody has any questions. We can stop and be done for the day. No, 
Let's, uh, let's, let's try to understand this passage together by, first of all, asking ourselves, what would you say to a group of Christians who are, who are suffering for their faith? What would you want to communicate to a body of believers who are being opposed, who are being marginalized and mocked for their commitment to Christ and their way of life in Christ? That's Peter's audience here. Peter is writing to encourage Christians who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. And what he wants them to have in their minds and their hearts is a a better, fuller, deeper understanding of who Jesus Christ is for them in the gospel. Now that in and of itself is a lesson for us, isn't it? What, What do we need when, when we are suffering, not for doing evil, but for doing good, suffering for Christ's sake, we need a fuller vision of who our Savior is. And in this passage, Peter says essentially four things about Jesus Christ. These are the four headings, the four things I want us to reflect on this morning. Christ our substitute, Christ our preacher, Christ our Deliverer, and Christ our Victor. I'll say those again if you want to write them down. Uh, Christ our Substitute, Christ our Preacher, Christ our Deliverer, and Christ our Victor. Let's, let's start with the first one, Christ our Substitute. Now, have a look again at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, the four at the beginning of verse 18, of course, is connecting what Peter's saying now back to what he was just saying previously in, in verse 17. That it's you know, better to, to suffer for, for doing good than to do evil. Okay? That's, that's the connection here. And now he says that we should do it for or because... Christ also suffered. But of course, Peter is saying more than that, more than that Christ is an example in suffering. He's saying Christ suffered once for sins. There is a a uniqueness, there is a distinctness to the sufferings of Christ that cannot be repeated or replicated Christ suffered once for sins. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12 remind us that unlike all of the old covenant high priests who, according to the Levitical law, offered sacrifices every day, Hebrews 9 says, Christ has entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of bulls and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing eternal redemption. See, the sufferings of Jesus have a unique and irreplaceable character. It is the only once-for-all sacrifice for sin. That means no other is needed. Nothing else in addition is needed in order to deal with the problem of our sin. There are no other religious sacrifices or rituals or activities 
that we need to add to Christ's once for all sacrifice to somehow make it complete. It is complete in and of itself as the once for all sacrifice for sin. And, and notice how it works. Jesus is our substitute, in the language of Peter, the righteous for the unrighteous. So Jesus, the righteous one, offers himself for the unrighteous in order that he might bring us to God. That he might reconcile us to God. See, our unrighteousness excludes us from God. But Jesus the righteous takes the place of the unrighteous and in doing so receives in himself the judgment that our sin deserves in order that we might be reconciled to the Father. An exchange took place, the righteous for the unrighteous. There's a a wonderful illustration of this, I think, in the, the gospel narratives. It, it's in all four gospels. Uh, that, that, that's a striking thing in and of itself because we know that the gospels are selective, right? John tells us that you know, books could fill the world if we were to tell you everything about what Jesus said and did. And yet all four gospels tell this story of Barabbas, so we have to ask the question, why? Why this story of a, of, a, of a criminal and Jesus taking his place, the, the criminal going free and, and Jesus being condemned instead? You remember uh, Jesus is on trial and the mob are crying for his blood and Pilate stands before them all and says, who do you, who do you want me to release to you? B- Barabbas, the, the criminal, the insurrectionist, the the murderer, or Jesus, in whom I find no fault. And everyone shouts for Barabbas to be released and Christ to be crucified instead. So Barabbas goes, and Jesus, the innocent one, is condemned instead. The exchange, you see, illustrates what Jesus came to do. He suffered the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. I think another interesting thing about the inclusion of that story of Barabbas is the fact that the name of Barabbas, you know what it means? It means son of the father. And so here you have this wonderful picture because the truth is we are all a, a, a Barabbas-like figure. Rebels against God who stand guilty before the bar of God's justice. And Jesus takes our place and bears the penalty our sin deserves so that we might truly be named children of the Father. The only begotten Son gives himself for me that I might be named a son of God. See, the work is all his. That's what's being communicated here in this, this first verse, verse 18. There's, there's nothing for you to do. There's nothing for you to contribute. No words, no works, no prayers, no priests, no additional sacrifices, no rituals, none of it. Christ does it all. 
That's what we're saying when we say Christ is my substitute. He suffered once for sin to bring us to God. He does it, you see. He does it. We, we don't commend ourselves to God. I want us all to hear this, but for a minute, I, I especially want to, to speak to the kids of our church and the youth of our church. Do you, do you, do you understand what, what Peter is teaching us here in this passage? You do not have to earn your way to God. Jesus Christ has made the way to God. He is himself the way to God. And by his once for all sacrifice for sin, we can have a relationship with God. And so the question for all of us to ask ourselves is, do I have Christ as my substitute? Am I trusting in him and his once for all sacrifice for sin on my behalf? Only he can do it. Christ our substitute. Then secondly, Christ our preacher. So Christ our substitute, now Christ our preacher. Have a look at the last part of verse 18. Look at it closely. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. How how should we understand that? What's Peter saying there? Well, I think if we capitalize the S in spirit, we're on our way to understanding what Peter is actually saying here. Peter isn't talking about Jesus' human spirit. He's talking about how Jesus was made alive in the resurrection, his bodily resurrection by the work of the Holy Spirit, by God the Holy Spirit. So then verse 19 should, should read, not in which, but in whom. Okay, look at verse 19. In whom he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought to safety through water. Okay, now, now we're in the high grass. <laughs> What is Peter saying? Some people think that the spirits in prison means Jesus went to hell sometime between his uh, his resur- uh, sorry his death and his resurrection in order to proclaim his victory over the unbelieving dead and the powers of darkness. A small group think this passage lends support to the idea of some sort of uh, post-mortem opportunity uh, for those who died without faith to believe the gospel. And I'll, I'll just say, I don't, I don't find either of those two explanations um, all that credible. So, so here is my, my best attempt at what I think Peter is saying here, okay? Having told us about the ministry of the Spirit in raising Jesus from the dead... Peter wants to encourage the suffering and marginalized church in his day. So Peter's Peter's teaching offers encouragement to them and to us by reminding us, pointing us to a time in human history when God's people were marginalized and mocked, but God was nevertheless at work 
both to save and to judge. You may recall Noah's time. Noah's time was a time period largely marked by unbelief and immorality. God's people were very few, in fact, just Noah and his family, and they were ridiculed for their faith. Nobody nobody believed that a flood of judgment was on the way. Nobody. And yet Noah faithfully obeyed God. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 5 calls him a preacher of righteousness. He preached that God is just, that judgment is coming on the world in the form of a a flood, but that there is an ark that we can flee to and find refuge in. So come and take refuge. God has provided a way of escape from the judgment that is to come. That was his message in a nutshell, I think. And that means every, every nail he hammered, every board he hammered home as he built the ark was proclaiming that message. Bang, the waters of judgment are coming. Come and seek refuge. Bang, flee from the wrath to come. There is a place of safety. A day of reckoning is coming. Seek refuge in the ark. That was Noah's message, both in word and in deed. He built the ark and in so doing was proclaiming both mercy and judgment. But Peter says his generation did not obey. The word obey here means they they did not receive and respond to the message appropriately. They they rejected the message Noah preached in his words and works. God patiently waited as the ark was prepared, holding out the possibility of deliverance, showing there was an appointed place of refuge for anyone who would believe God. But only Noah's family heeded the message. And, and as a result, when... So, you got to listen closely here to tense. When Peter was writing, the spirits of that unbelieving generation were in prison. It was Peter saying that they are now in hell under the judgment of God... But Peter says that Christ went and preached to that generation in the time of Noah by the Holy Spirit who raised him from the dead. Okay, I, so I take, I take this to mean that Christ preached to Noah's generation in and through the preaching of Noah. And I think that's right in light of some other passages in in first peter the first is back in chapter 1 verse 11 where peter is talking about the ministry of the prophets in the old testament scriptures who predicted the the sufferings of christ and his subsequent glory and they did it peter says by the spirit of christ in them it was the spirit of christ in them that gave them their message it was christ by the spirit who revealed the things concerning his own suffering and glory to follow. And so Peter is saying, here I think, the same spirit, the spirit of Christ, through Noah, preached to Noah's generation, a generation whose spirits are now in prison because they did not believe and respond accordingly. 
think another passage that helps us is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6, where Peter speaks about the gospel preached, these are his words, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. My understanding of that is people who are now dead heard the gospel while they were yet alive so that even though they received in their bodies the earthly consequences of sin, they died. Nevertheless, by believing the gospel, they live in their spirits in the presence of God awaiting the bodily resurrection. See, that's a very similar thought, though with a very different outcome because the people here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6, heard the gospel and responded very differently than those who were alive in the days of Noah. Okay, so, so put all of this together, and, and I think we can summarize our passage like this. Christ was made alive in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. It is by the same Spirit... Christ proclaimed to the people of Noah's generation who who are now in prison for their unbelief the possibility of of rescue and the inevitability of judgment. And this, this proclamation, it took place when God demonstrated his patience while the ark was being prepared in and through the preaching of Noah, the preacher of righteousness. Okay? You still with me? Have I lost everybody? You might be thinking, okay, so what? So what, Pastor Jerry? What, is, what, is this, what does this mean for, for Christians today? Well, again, remember, Peter wants Christians to know that Christ was the preacher in the preaching of the, during the days of Noah. When, when Noah proclaimed the truth, Christ himself was at work by the Holy Spirit, announcing mercy and judgment in the power of the Spirit. So think, think now about Peter's generation facing opposition on all sides, slandered and misunderstood. Persecution is on the horizon, real persecution, suffering for the sake of Christ. And perhaps they're wondering, you know, what, what hope is there for the advance of the gospel in, in such a place. But what, what hope is there for proclaiming the good news in the face of, of such darkness? Well, one of the things is it is remembering that as in the days of Noah, that Christ by his spirit through his people proclaims the gospel in the face of such darkness. And though many did not believe in time of Noah, so do not be surprised when there is opposition. Some did believe and were saved. I can't remember how many weeks ago it was, and Sunday evening Pastor Dave spoke to us about the the ministry of Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, as mediator. And as prophet, we, we thought about how Christ reveals the will of God for our salvation. And, and we know that he did that during his earthly ministry. And we, but we've, we've seen Peter's telling us that Christ was acting as prophet even before the incarnation, proclaiming mercy and judgment by the Spirit through his servant Noah and through his servants, the prophets. And 
he continues, this is what we need to appreciate for today, he continues to proclaim the gospel and the power of the Spirit through his people. Isn't that, isn't that an amazing thing to think about? Whenever and wherever God's word is opened up and read and proclaimed, albeit through lisping and stammering tongues, albeit in weakness, Christ by his Spirit is proclaiming his word. And what an encouragement that should be to us then to, to open our mouths and to make known the unsearchable riches of Christ. Reminds us that we don't do it in our own strength either, doesn't it? It, it isn't by our, our power of persuasion or our eloquence that people are brought from death to life. It is Christ by the Spirit working through us who accomplishes God's purposes through the ministry of his word. So, so Christ our substitute, Christ our preacher, and now thirdly, Christ our deliverer. Follow Peter's train of thought, okay? If, if Christ is the preacher by the Spirit, even though many do not obey the word, the point is some will. Some did in the days of Noah. Some will in our day too. Noah and his family believed and obeyed. And, and as I think a more literal reading of verse 20 puts it, they were saved through water. They were saved through water. And I think that thought sends Peter back to the experience of believers in the church and our experience today as well. So take a look at verse 21. Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal or a pledge to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the deliverance of Noah, who trusted God and took refuge in the ark and so was saved through water, Peter says that corresponds to Christian baptism. So we've got to ask the question, in what way does that correspond or symbolize, picture Christian baptism? Okay, let's, let's zero in on verse 21, which, you know, on first reading, I think I said to, to someone this week, on first reading, this, this verse makes Presbyterians squirm a little bit. Right? Baptism, which now saves you. <laughs> what? <laughs> what is Peter saying? You know, did, did, did somebody who believes in, in baptismal regeneration tamper with the text? Uh, is, is, is Peter really saying... As he's just told us, you know, Jesus is your all-sufficient substitute has, who's made a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. Jesus is all you need to be brought to God, to be reconciled to God. And, and oh yeah, you need to be baptized uh, because baptism saves. No, I don't think that's what, what Peter is saying. I think he's saying that baptism saves the same way the ark saved Noah. You've got to believe the promise of God to escape the flood and take refuge in God's appointed place of safety. So just imagine a scenario with me for a minute. Noah and his family, they're in the process of constructing the ark and after a long day of, of labor, they're, they're uh, sitting around and they're having a meal together and and Noah looks around at his family, and he's having his doubts. He says, uh, I'm not sure what I think about this whole flood thing anymore. I, I think I'm going to 
leave behind this, this ark business. And he, and he goes away. Now that's the question. Would the ark have saved Noah? And the answer is, of course, no. Without believing and acting appropriately on God's word, there was no deliverance for Noah from the flood to come. Without faith, without trust in the word of God, without obedience to the truth, there is no possibility of salvation. You've got to believe and get in the ark. In Noah's terms, rain, rain is coming, flood is coming, the waters of judgment are coming, but God has provided the way of escape. And inside the ark, you will pass through the waters safely. Okay, so then in what sense does, does baptism save us? That's what I said a minute ago. It saves us, I think, the same way the ark saved Noah. Noah believed God and took refuge in the ark and was saved. You've got to believe that there is an ark of safety into which we may flee to be rescued from the flood and the judgment that is coming and take refuge there in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You see, baptism baptism is a picture. In our own tradition, we we talk about the, the sacraments of baptism in the Lord's Supper as the word made visible. It is, it is God's word to us that there is a way of escape through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are safe when we believe God's word and take refuge in Jesus Christ. Now, now think about then how this message would have given perspective to Christians suffering for their, their faith. Think about how it gives Christians perspective suffering for their faith in any age. In Noah's day, everybody was baptized. Everybody got baptized. Noah and his family passed through the waters safely because they trusted and obeyed God and took refuge in the ark. But the rest of the world was baptized. The rest of the world was baptized in waters of judgment. They did not obey the word, the spirit Christ, of Christ proclaimed to them through Noah. They did not uh, hear the word, believe, and respond appropriately, and so they were baptized in waters of judgment. We see this very same pattern again with Israel and the Egyptians at the sea. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says that Israel passed through the sea and they were baptized. They were baptized in their passing through the sea. Israel was delivered through baptism. But in the same waters, the Egyptians were drowned in judgment. See, it's a, it's a pattern, a pattern that will fully be realized on the final day of judgment when Christ returns. Those who believe God and take refuge in Christ, will be saved, while those who do not obey the truth, those who do not believe the gospel, will be swept away in judgment. Peter wants suffering Christians to understand this reality, to have it it in view during the days of God's patience. Peter, of course, will talk about much more in his second letter. 
that God is showing patient in, patience in this present age so that many would come to faith and repentance. So Peter wants suffering Christians to understand this reality. It's a reality symbolized in Christian baptism. Perhaps it's an aspect of baptism that we don't think about often enough, that it is a sign both of salvation and of judgment. To those who believe in Christ, it is a sign of deliverance. But to those who reject him, deny him, baptism is a sign of judgment. Now, in case anyone is still struggling with the language of of baptism now saves you, let me just quickly say in passing, I think Peter makes it clear that the rite of baptism does not save automatically on on its own. He gives his own important qualification. If you look at what he says in the rest of verse 21. This is baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, the language that Peter uses here, that's translated removal of dirt from the body, it's unique terminology But elsewhere it's used not to describe literal dirt on our skin, but it's actually used to describe moral filth, the the moral grime uh, that's staining our lives as a result of our sin. I think that's what what Peter actually means by this phrasing. So, So then notice what Peter says. Baptism saves not by removing your moral filth, because after all, the waters of baptism can't do that. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you. But baptism saves as an appeal to God for a good conscience. And as I've suggested, I think, um, I think appeal may be better translated as, as pledge or as a commitment to God. So, so Peter here, I think, is reminding these Christians, that at their baptism, they they believed God's promise. They claimed it for themselves. They pledged themselves to God. Peter says that that resulted in a good conscience before God. So then ask, what, what, what has Peter done then in saying all of these things? I think he's given suffering Christians the perspective of reality that they need to keep on living faithfully, even under persecution, to keep on living in a way that would honor their baptism. He's saying, remember your baptism. You, You trusted Christ. You pledged yourself to God. So while you suffer now for a little while for his sake, while you are marginalized and slandered in the world, rest assured, deliverance will come. Final deliverance will come. And your baptism itself proclaims and assures you that those who believe the gospel and take refuge in Christ will pass through the final judgment safely. And so press on. (laughs) Keep keep believing. Keep following and living faithfully uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of an unbelieving generation. And so Christ, our substitute, Christ, our preacher, Christ, our deliverer, and then just a word about Christ, our victor. Verse 22, 
Peter says Christ is seated in resurrection glory in heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now again, isn't, isn't that a word of an encouragement to a group of believers who are bowed low, who are being humiliated in the world, who are being slandered and marginalized in society, to have their eyes lifted up and to see at the right hand of God the Father their substitute and their deliverer, who is also the king, <laughs> to whom every power and authority on earth has been subjected. That's what Peter is saying here. What, a, what an encouragement that your substitute and deliverer is the victor and everything has been subjected to him. That, that's Peter's message. And so Peter is saying to the church, perhaps at a time when it's tempted to shrink back, perhaps at a time when it's tempted to go silent or to try to just blend in, he's saying to them, no, you can stand firm. You can suffer for righteousness. You can speak and live for Jesus because he has already won the victory over all authorities and all powers. The great Roman establishment is nothing before the great victor, Jesus Christ. The kingdoms of this world will fall and pass away, but the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ endures forever. So brothers and sisters, if, if, you're, if you're fearful about what it will mean for you to live as a faithful Christian in the world, then here is a message for you. If you're anxious about what is it going to mean for me, what's it going to mean for me to follow Jesus Christ faithfully and identify with him, here is the perspective you and I need to have. We can speak and live for Jesus if we know our Christ. If we know our Christ. He, he is our substitute who has offered himself once and for all for sin so that nothing in heaven or on earth can separate us from the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. He is our preacher speaking through weak people like us in the power of the Spirit calling people to take refuge in him from the coming judgment and he himself is our deliverer our refuge place, our ark of salvation, so that trusting in him, we will pass through the waters safely and be brought into the new creation. And finally, he's our victor, the one who reigns and rules over every power. And that means, dear friends, that we can have confidence in him, we can live for him in the face of darkness, remembering our baptism. We can speak and live for the Lord Jesus Christ, even if it results in opposition and suffering. Why? Because Christ is our substitute, because Christ is our preacher, because Christ is our deliverer, and because Christ is our victory. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we thank you for um, this portion of your word and 
Uh, Surely there are parts of your word that are difficult to understand, but we we approach it this morning believing that all of it is profitable for teaching and and reproof and uh, correction and uh, training in righteousness. And we pray that you would take the truth of this portion of your word to, to that end, to show us the way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, to teach us, to convict us, to heal us, and to train us as we seek to follow after Christ. We thank you that he is our substitute, that he is our preacher, that he is our deliverer, and that he is our victor. We uh, we pray that you'd give us this perspective in life so that we would live boldly for the sake of Jesus Christ and with our lips and with our lives proclaim the good news of grace that is found in Christ alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.